That idea of figuring out something that no one else has really done is so exhilarating to me because you have to pull on so many resources. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, the beginning of a new year is just like any other day, an opportunity to refresh and create the life you want to live. It's great that people focus on this every new year, but can you imagine living a life where you wake up and approach every day with this mindset? Too often, the new year comes and we make a resolution. We decide to lose weight, drink less, start a business, and then after a few days or weeks, a couple setbacks, we start to slide or we change course again or revert back to old habits. But to get today's guest understands that you can't do something halfway. If you want to make a change, you have to make a choice to change, but not only that, you have to be committed to that choice. John Brinkus, affectionately referred to as Johnny One Speed by his wife, is the six-time Emmy award-winning creator, host, and producer of Sports Science, the best-selling author of The Perfection Point, and host of the Brink of Midnight podcast, and the latest work called Soul and Science alongside Trent Dilfer. And he is the perfect person to teach us how to tackle each day like an opportunity to do more. One of the foundational lessons he learned early on in his life is something he referred to as the seven Ps of life. John's dad had a profound impact on his life, and one of the most important things he taught him were the seven Ps, which stands for prior proper planning prevent piss-poor performance. In other words, you're never going to get where you want to go without direction. At the same time, John's father taught him to dream big. When you combine these lessons, you have a recipe for a remarkable life. And when you take that with you every single day, it's almost impossible not to achieve what you set out to do. Now, in a world full of get-rich-quick schemes and Facebook ads promising one product to solve all of your problems and get you from here to there without any adversity or challenges, there are people selling shortcuts to every dream. But shortcuts rarely work the way they are sold. And there's great value in choosing the more difficult path. The path less traveled will certainly require constant reinvention and pivoting. And that's definitely not an easy thing to do. But it will be just a little bit easier if you approach each day as an opportunity to refresh. There is so much value in this conversation with John. So bust out your pens and paper. Take some notes and brace for impact at the end of the episode. Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash EP-146 for all the show notes 
And you can get a link to John's podcast. You can get a link to Soul and Science. You can watch Sports Science. You can download or buy the Perfection Point, all of the great things. And importantly, you can get information on the important foundation that John Brinkus and Ray Lewis are involved in called the Ray of Hope Foundation. And you can go and purchase tickets for the Ray of Hope Foundation big Super Bowl event that's coming up soon. So again, bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. John, Mr. One Speed Brinkus, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you about all kinds of things, about creating something from nothing, about uh, defining value, about pursuing greatness, and, and a, a ton of things. But uh, we are the, the first episode of 2019 for the Impact Entrepreneur Show, you and I. And, and so we're going we're gonna to start there. Kind of, we're, we're in this new season. There's a new season of life going on with, with everyone. And I almost... Part of me thinks that like New Year's are, are a little bit funny and silly because it's really just another day. You know, I mean, yes, a cal- mm-hmm. it's a new calendar, but like, why treat it like any other day? Why not just have every day be a new day and a refresh and opportunity to go get it? So here we are. But there, nevertheless, you know, we've got this cultural thing where we just have to start new. It's the new year, new resolutions, new goals, new missions, new energy. So when you are facing a new opportunity, a, a new project, or a new year, how do you begin to approach it? You know, it's funny. In the beginning, you called me Johnny One Speed, which is <laughs> that is the nickname that my wife has given me. I am a very binary person. I've always been very binary, even as a kid. Whatever it is that I want to do, I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. I'm either on or I'm off. Uh, New Year's, like you said, is kind of this arbitrary day where people hold off and they hold off and they hold off. And then the New Year's comes. Very often, January 1 turns into January 2, turns into January 3, and it slides and that resolution is never met. I like to think about if you want to make change, you actually have to make a choice and to be committed about that choice. You can't halfway make a change. You can't halfway stop drinking. You can't halfway start a business. You can't heart, you just have to say, this is what I'm going to do and I'm in. And when people say, well, I'm never going to find time for that, think of the amount of time you have to watch Netflix. Or the amount of time you have to play Fortnite. If you tally up all the hours in your day, you have a tremendous amount of time to make change, but that's really up to you. Mm -hmm. There's 168 hours in a week. And most of us probably sleep somewhere between 50 and 55 hours. And the the rest of that is, is completely up to us. I mean, 110 plus hours a week of opportunity, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it was amazing when you actually, so I printed out a seven day week calendar and I budgeted my time. I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sleep 54 hours a week. How am I spending the rest of my time? What am I doing right now? I held myself accountable and I realized, holy smokes, I'm wasting so much time. You know, yeah. and people ask me, you know, I, like I wrote a book this year. I do this podcast. I run another business. 
people, how do you have so much time to do it? And it's, it's just about paying attention. <laughs> right. It really is also about fo- you know, being able to focus. It, it, a lot of people, I believe, lack the discipline of commitment, focus, and understanding what that means. And, and I will analogize this to a marriage. People say, you know, you get married and you have kids and people are like, oh my God, now you got married and you have kids. Now you can't do blank. You can't go out to bars all the time with your buddies. Like, right. I made that choice. It wasn't like I accidentally got married and accidentally had kids. I intentionally did this. And because I did this, now I know I have to sacrifice things. I no longer can do these things. I have to do other things. And in every choice you make, you have to realize you're going to give something up. You're not going to be able to do everything. You have to selectively choose. need to spend time with my family, need to have fun, need to have some downtime, mm-hmm. but also need to have some focus time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my, uh, I, as I was preparing for this, this interview, one of the things I read was your desire to do great things and to be recognized for. Uh, the effort that you've put into stuff started way back in kindergarten <laughs> when you submitted some work and your teacher said, Oh, hey, Johnny, this is good. And I said, Good is a word you use when something is not great. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and what's ridiculous is that I have used that phrase my entire life. And it sounds like such a it's what's funny is people are like, whoa, all right, Mr. Great. But I use that word very sparingly, like mm-hmm. even referring to anything that I do. I'm like, look, is that great or is it good? I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word great very sparingly. I mm-hmm. mean, because we all say we all tend to say, oh my God, that guy is great. That guy is he's amazing. He's great. I'm like, use the right word in the right context because mm-hmm. language exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. I like to hold superlatives for when they are applicable. I don't like to just throw them around. Yes, yes. I, I also read this. Your that superlatives are your favorite, highest, biggest, fastest, strongest. Um, you know, and and your passion for sports science and fight science and soul and science, all of this stuff started way back in in elementary school. Era when you realize, you know, I'm not going to be the greatest athlete, even though you loved it, right? Even though you love sports and you love sports and you compete in Ironmans and do all of these things today, you recognized and quote unquote, you know, you knew your place was not going to be, um, you know, wearing, suiting up and putting pads on and going out and and uh, being a fullback, that just wasn't your role. How did you, what was the moment where that started to kind of click in you? So the moment for me athletically, and this is a a very important insight into my personality and also I think personalities that are common in terms of being a self-starter and getting something done. It's one of the most important things to do when you're here in business is to hire well and to fire well. And you need to be able to do that in your own life. You need to be honest. Um, when people say you can do anything you, anything you want, I say, look, I get what you're saying. But the truth is, you can do anything you can. I'm not going to play fullback in the NFL. No matter how badly I want to, 
I simply am not able to. And people say, oh, you're selling yourself short. I'm like, no, I know for a fact I'm just not built that way. And it's fine and it's healthy to admit the things that you cannot do. For me, the moment, you know, in sixth grade, I was the fastest kid in town and I had the, you know, the school record for the 600 yard dash and the presidential physical fitness test. And I was, you know, I was tiny, really small, but really fast. So seventh and eighth grade come around and you go to a bigger school and all of a sudden I'm not the fastest kid. I enter high school. I am four foot eight, 86 pounds. I have friends who are over six feet tall, over 200 pounds. And I'm just doing the math and I'm going, all right, my dad is, you know, he's five, nine, five, 10. My mom's five feet. My sister's five feet. I mean, best case scenario, eventually I'm going to grow to be five, eight, five, nine. That's my best case. So what can I do athletically? I played football, basketball, baseball, track, you know, like I, and I was a decent athlete for the town, but I wasn't. I, once sixth grade went by, I was no longer the kid that was always on the all star team or the best kid. Like I just, everybody passed me. And I did not, they did not pass me because of a lack of effort. They passed me because I was maxing out what I could do. That realization is fine. And I feel as though that really carried over into my career because I'll give you a really good example. I knew I wanted to go into entertainment. I knew it. I just I said, you know what? My passion, my true passion is sport and science. And I want to entertain. I don't know how I'm going to put that together. I really didn't have a vision when I started down that road. In fact, it, my initial road was, it was radio. And I went into radio. And so I was a DJ at WUVA, um, which I went to the University of Virginia. I was. I then was a, an intern at WAVA Radio in Washington D.C., um, and I became an intern because I walked in. I said, "I want to work for you for free." They said, "Well, we don't really take interns." I walked out, took a breath, walked back in. I said, "How can you turn me away? I'm saying I'm going to work for you for free. If I'm terrible, then tell me to leave." So I essentially shoehorned an internship in very quickly. Became a producer there. Did some on-air work there. I was like, oh my God, this radio thing is amazing. But while I was there, in three months, there were three different general managers, got to meet all of, you know, all of the DJs and the production staff and everything. And I saw that it was an industry that was very transient. Nobody was in one spot for a, a long time. And it wasn't by their choice. It was like, oh, your the rating books came out and three, you were hired for three months and then you're fired. And I'm like, God, this doesn't seem like I'm in much control. In the radio business, so I gave it up. I was like, you know what, radio, entertainment-wise, that's not what I want. So I then went down a different path. But I think it's it's really important to be honest of what you can and cannot do, and what you should or should not be doing. Hmm. I think that's a, a really profound insight, and I think that too many of us, too often, I think the majority of people, unfortunately. Um, they're not honest with themselves. They know intuitively, like in their core, that they're called to do something else. But uh, someone who's a major influence in their life has said, no, you should go do this thing. And so they end up doing it. And maybe they're moderately good at it, but they're never satisfied. They're always frustrated. But they're, it's just cl so close to their potential that they just kind of like go on with it, right? And eventually, 
so much friction builds up in their life that everything just grinds down to a halt. And it really takes someone to remind them of who they are and what they're called to be and who they're capable of becoming. And fortunately for you, you had that, it sounds like, you know, at a young age. And one of the people that no doubt was an influence in your life was your dad. Yeah. Uh, and, and as I was researching this, I didn't actually realize that he had passed in September of 2018 until I was preparing uh, our, our call for our call today. And, and I, I read some things that other people had wrote about him, about just how much uh, an influence they had on their life. And in fact, there was a person named Eric who was, I must have been a childhood friend of yours who commented on an obituary about how much your dad opening your family home to him meant to him and still today, even yeah. though he lost touch with your family. And so I would love to learn what your dad taught you about kindness, about service to others, and about pursuing your dreams. Yeah, my parents are just this wonderful combination. Um, my dad, as you mentioned, you know, passed away in September. And there, there are some real big tent poles that I can say my father instilled in me that I obviously will carry for my entire life and will pass on to uh, my family as well. One of them was, he said to me, John, there are seven Ps in life. Prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Hmm. And he would tell me that as a child. He would just say, don't just, just uh, like winging it, like not thinking about it, just good, like, like sort of not having that direction, you're never going to get to where you want to go. So prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. That means studying for a test. That means having a vision. That means, so that was one. Two, my household, and, and, and this is hilarious. There are four, four, of, uh, four in my family. I have a sister, obviously my mom and my dad. One point in our house, we had nine people. Living in our house, we had more non-Brankuses than Brankuses. We didn't. I didn't have a key to my front door. You know, we had an open door policy, and if you needed a place to stay, you could you could come over our house. And the number of people who came through our house of we're just opening opening our door, we'll feed you, we'll give you shelter, whatever. You know, in some cases, it did involve people who really needed a place to stay. In other cases, it was just friends who. Wanted to live with us. And it, it was just such a wonderful experience. It continues to be an experience of just having that idea of, you know what? There's always room. You know, there is always room at the end. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's how I feel. And whether or not it's literally your house or your life, look, there's always room. Another tenant was my father. He worked a job that he was, he worked in the government for 20 years and he made a decision. He was working in the private sector. He, you know, could have gone off and he had this inflection point where he could have gone off and been very successful in the private sector. There is this new thing. He, you know, this is back in the 70s, but there was this new emerging thing called technology and computers. And <laughs> he was gonna, you know, be sort of the forefront of that. Well, he decided to go work for the government and to install technology at different agencies. And the reason why he did that was so that he could be with our family every night, 5:30. Dinner time, family first, and he made he made that decision of well, you know what, my family's gonna be first. 
I'm going to have this job. I know it's going to be predictable. And that's the choice that he made. He looked at me and he said, I'm doing this because they grew up in a very small coal mining town. And essentially, we're, you know, my mom and dad were, uh, you know, the characters in, in uh, Springsteen's Born to Run, like, let's <laughs> get out of here. They're like, we're getting out of the coal mining town. And once he got to DC, he went to Georgetown, he went to the Naval Academy, and he, got, and he ended up working for the government. He looked at me and he said, John, I'm doing this so that you can do whatever it is that you want to do. That's why I'm doing this. Mm. And he said, dream big. So that idea of dreaming big fell into, well, I, do, I want to be in entertainment. I was, always, I was always in the student government. I was always creating projects. I was entertaining people anyway. I love to make things. I love to make something out of nothing. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. So my dad really instilled these principles in me that obviously I've carried on my entire life. He was obviously a, a child of the Great Depression. His parents were uh, you know, in the Great Depression. Did they, did, when you think back to your grandparents, did they have any sort of the same kind of energy in terms of like dreaming and, and desiring greatness for their, their family? Yeah, absolutely. My grandfather in particular, my uh, mother's father was one, he was, he was essentially the educated man in town. He was the principal. He went to Scranton University. Everybody else worked in a coal mine. And so here's this guy who's the only educated man. And as you can imagine, you know, back in those days, it's, there's something weird about if you're an outlier, like the community doesn't necessarily embrace like, oh, wow, great job. Everyone's like, hey, why aren't you just like us? Mm-hmm. You know, so it, something as simple as getting a college degree, being a principal is so outside of the box for some people. They're like, who do you think you are? That sort of vibe. My grandfather, um, you know, who passed away, you know, 15 years ago, God rest his soul. He was, he was such a, he was such a, a trailblazer. Mm. And when people think about trails that need to be blazed, Having the courage to do something that no one else is doing is hard. It's harder than it sounds. For whatever reason, I have that gene in me. Yeah. Where I don't. I, I when I say I I am the kind of person who looks at what the crowd is doing and analyzes it and really says, "Do I want? Do I want to be doing that?" And usually the answer is, "I want to be doing my own thing." Mm-hmm. Not just to be a contrarian, but because what what this group of people is doing is not it's just not something that gives me pleasure. I want to do something and make something that can somehow perpetuate positive energy. You know, there's this uh, there's this really interesting moment in the story of David versus Goliath when David walks to, to the battlefield and he sees his brother and the entire Israelite army in the trenches, right? The Philistines are facing down the Israelites. Nobody is fighting the Israelites. Everybody is in the trenches. And David's brother says to him, hey, what are you doing here? Go back and take care of your little flock of sheep. You don't belong on the battlefield. And David says, oh yeah, watch me, right? (laughs) And so talk about doing the opposite, right? You know, mentorship is something that's really critical. You talked a lot about your your father, your, your parents, your upbringing, and obviously, there are, are non-family members that play a big role in, in drawing out our potential. And there's this really great proverb that says, the purposes of one's heart are deep waters, which I love that, that visual. Purposes of one's heart are deep waters. 
and the one with insight draws them out. So who in who have been some of the one or two of the of the biggest influences in your life that have really seen you and have reached into your heart and drawn out your potential? Yeah, I, I obviously, you know, I talked a lot about my father. You know, my mother is is that person, you know, obviously throughout my entire childhood and youth, who she just kept reinforcing. Like she kept reinforcing this idea of you're special. And she was saying it, but not in John Brankus, you are the greatest human being ever. But she it was almost that that Mr. Rogers idea. Mm-hmm. You're special. Mm-hmm. Like you, every human being, everyone is special. And do you identify that? So mm-hmm. my mom telling me I spe- she's not telling me, you know, she's not blowing smoke in my face and making me delusional. She's saying, look around. Everyone is special. Mm -hmm. Do you feel special? Mm -hmm. Are you doing special things? Because you are special. So that's really one. I mean, the 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 person outside of my youth who's by far the most influential is my wife. And I met my wife in, you know, I'm a God believing, God loving, God fearing man. I met my wife sitting next to her on a plane. We have this instant connection. We can go into all the metaphysics and you know the sort of fate of it all, but we fall instantly in love. There was a mechanical problem on the plane. We had to get off. I was traveling with another guy that we got split up with a ticket mix-up. I went up to him and I said, I'll give you $100 to stay away from me. Just met the woman. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, dating, I'm dating somebody. She's dating somebody. But I'm like, I'm going to marry this woman. God has, is shining a light on her. So we spent five hours in the Denver airport. And uh, when we finally landed in LA, I said, you know, is there a chance I can get your uh, contact info? She said, yeah, chances are pretty good. Turns out we live two blocks away from each other on the same street in Brentwood in LA. And that moment in time changed everything. Literally, personally, my career, my spirituality, my outlook on life, the idea, that idea of things do happen in a way that you can't plan for is 100% true. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll tell you one other moment that, re- that really, really influenced me in a spiritual fashion. When we had our first son, we had our, we had our first child, our son, he was only you know, a few weeks, a few months old, and I'm up at 3 a.m. and I'm holding him. And you know, I'm t- really tired. Work is going bananas and I'm stressed. And I'm holding him and I'm saying to, to him as he's crying, it's all going to be okay. And I'm rocking him to sleep. I'm like, it's all going to be okay. No need to cry. And at that very moment, I felt God's love raining down on me, holding me saying, it's all going to be all right. Mm-hmm. No worry to stress. Don't mm-hmm. worry. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were some really profound moments mm-hmm. uh, in my life. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. 
Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. There is a, um, a really great book recommendation um, for you. It's a short book, but it's like so rich. It's one of those like dense books. It's called Beginning to Pray. Yeah. And it was written by this guy named Anthony Bloom. And one of the things that, that st- struck me, and I know based on what you said, it'll, it'll strike you as well when, you, when I read this. It was like this sentence, God willed you into existence. Right. And like that, and I'm like, dang, that's, I believe that. And that means that I believe the same for every single person around me, right? And I need to treat them and honor them as such, right? And what I love, I mean, what I love about that and what I love about prayer, um, you know, the, the pastor at my church, um, when, I, when I lived in Calabasas, a guy named Father McNamara, un, just one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. He had this amazing phrase. He said, do you believe, do you believe that God has given you free will? Like, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that everything is mapped out in front of you or do you have free will? And of course, the answer is God has given us free will. Mm-hmm. God has given us the ability to make decisions and right and wrong. He said, then think about this. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes you. It's mm-hmm. God's way of allowing you to reflect and to meditate and to focus and to think about that. And every time that I pray, I pray morning, noon, and night. I pray all the time. And I pray to evaluate, how am I doing today? Mm-hmm. Right? Am I being a nice person? Am I, am I contributing positive energy? Or am I, am, I, or am I on the right track? What do I want to happen today? Not God, please let me win the lottery. Right? I mean, people are like, God, please let me, you know, let me make a billion dollars. That's right. not the right <laughs> prayer, right? The right prayer is, God, please give me the strength to execute on a vision I have that I believe will be will create positive energy in the universe. Mm-hmm. That is changing you. Mm-hmm. That's not changing God. And mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you mentioned a moment ago is that moment with your son uh, holding him at three o'clock in the morning. You're tired. You're stressed. Uh, I don't know how old he is now or where you were in terms of your you know, uh, production with base productions and all of the things you have been doing. But I love, you, you are this very optimistic, full of life, energy, uh, optimism, just pumped up. But nevertheless, you're human, right? So we face setbacks, we face rejection, we face disappointment. So what has been the most frustrating disappointment or rejection you've faced to date? Uh, or, or in recent times, and how have you gone about about reconciling it? That's, that is that is a bold question that I have never been asked. Hmm. That is a bold question. Yes, so, victory. <laughs> that's right. So it's a bold question. Here's the way that I'll answer it: is the there there are I find that as you go through life, you need to develop a filter of I want people in my life and I want to do good things, but not everybody is on the same page. And unfortunately, especially in business, while there's the, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to, we're going to start it even. 
And until you give me reason to not give you the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to treat you as an equal and we're all going to be fine. The idea of everyone not being on the same page um, and letting themselves down and letting the mission down and letting is something that throughout my career, I've had the setbacks that you have are when we're, we're just not on the same page and you have to adjust to someone not being on the, that same page. This is why, and the, this, this dovetails sort of into when, you, when, uh, when you're talking about creating a business, did an independent study with Steven Soderbergh when I was at University of Virginia. And I said to him, he had just made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He wasn't the Oscar award-winning director yet, but he was certainly on the rise. He, I said to him, how do I make it? He said, learn to do everything yourself so that you're never actually dependent on others. Like You can do everything yourself. You can write, you can direct, you can produce, you can edit, you can even in my case, you can host. But when you have sort of those setbacks of, wow, that person let the whole team down. How do I pick, how do I fill in that hole very quickly? I've always had a very lean, mean, nimble machine of human beings who I love, who I know I can depend on. And finding that, that group is a lifelong process. And I always tell people, if you wind up with one or two good friends at the end of your life, consider yourself lucky. Mm-hmm. Like, consider yourself incredibly fortunate. Because friends come and go. People's loyalties come and go. They just do. It's, not, it's nothing personal. It's just the way that life is. And you know, being, being somebody who... like When I say, look, I'm a, or I can't play poker because I'm a terrible liar. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm Johnny Onespeed going to get her to the max, but not everybody's on that same page. So mm-hmm. those sort of setbacks of like, you know, some, someone not upholding their end of the bargain is something you have to learn how to, how to uh, adjust. You are um, a, a massive prolific creator and, and you, you know, you've created things from nothing, which we talked about at the, at the beginning of the show. You had this idea. And, and this, you combined it with your passion and your curiosity and you just went for it. You committed, you went all in. And yet there are schemes today that, that promote the solution, the shortcut to get to some dis- destination faster, quicker, easier. But from your point of view, what is the value of choosing the more difficult path? You know, the value of it's kind of, it is a cliche, but if I knew how hard it was going to be, I never would have gone down that path. Right? Like, if you knew how hard, how hard it was going to be to do an Ironman or summon a mountain or do whatever, like, you never would have done it. That, ig- that ignorance is a good thing. That ignorance of, like, you know what? I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. Like, saying, I don't know how we're going to get to the moon, but we're going to figure it out. That idea of figuring out something that no one else has really done is so exhilarating to me because you have to pull on so many resources. You have to have a vision. Then you have to pull on resources of people who have done similar things, but not the same. And you have to kind of piecemeal it together. Like it's like a quilt. You're not like, you're not laying down, um, you know, a carpet. You're putting together a quilt and you're not sure. You know which piece of information is more valuable than another, and you are are playing this mental chess in your mind. Um, it's really important to me. I'm. It, what's interesting? I'm not. I'm not great at the linear task. I'm great at the non-linear task. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Okay, today we need to 
do Project X, I like to reverse engineer things and, and start with the end and work backwards or start from the middle and work out and delegate. Like there, there, it seems like to me, I think a good analogy is squeezing a tube of toothpaste. Very, very few of us start at the end and roll it up properly. We squeeze it from all different places. Yeah. But then when we get down to the end of it, we're then rolling it up to make sure that we don't miss any of the details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think making something out of nothing is, is randomly squeezing that tube and then rolling it up at the end. Do you ever find yourself at a point where you've got you've done all of this creative stuff and your creative energy feels zapped, like it goes away? There are definitely moments where you feel where you feel stale. Mm-hmm. And when when you feel stale, that's where you know, you know what I need to, I need to somehow reinvent this. You know, sports science as a good example was, you know, it was on it had an 11 year run between Fox and ESPN. There are 1,800 different segments, six Emmys, blah, blah, blah. Like, like, wow, that's a lot of work. We had to reinvent it mm-hmm. multiple, multiple times because like, we've already done that. Like, I've, already, I've already done this thing. We have to make sure that we're never stale. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think, again, that's having that internal, that internal, internal barometer and being able to be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's kind of the... You know, when you look at careers of people who have been able to make it, look at how many times they've reinvented themselves. You know, mm-hmm. I look at Taylor Swift. Yeah. You look at Lady Gaga. You look, I mean, you can look at you too. Look at all these great musical acts and just think if they only wrote, you know, if they only stayed in one specific genre and didn't change their sound and didn't advance the ball, they would have been gone in a couple years. They just had this lasting, you just think about this lasting legacy because you constantly have to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. And I love that you use the word reinvention because I actually think that's the number one commonality that all high performers and and game changers share is the ability to reinvent themselves. And you have done that again with the new show, uh, Soul and Science with Trent Dilfer. And I love the word soul and how you you combined it with the the baseline of, of science and and there's this whole idea of in, in the entrepreneurial world of the dangers of building a business without a soul. And it's the same thing about if, you're, if you are building a career, you're building an athlete, you're building anything without a soul and you're just, you know, just going for it without any real true purpose or reason behind that. So I'd love to, to learn what your guys' dream and vision for soul and science is. It's really the marriage of the tangibles and intangibles, and we're beginning with sport, but we obviously are branching out far beyond that. The, what, what sports science really demonstrated is that you can analyze things and quantify certain aspects of athletics. But what's missing in that analysis, the intangibles, the heart, the desire, the leadership, you know, the will, everything. Like the, those things are missing in that analysis. And in terms of weighting the two, they have to, they, they really are equals in terms of importance. And I'd love to give the example of bigger, stronger, faster does not mean better. In fact, you want to be in the Goldilocks zone in almost anything. You don't want to be the tallest or the fastest or the strongest or the whatever in any one particular discipline, especially in, in team sports, because people say, well, of course you want to be the fastest runner. In a hundred meter dash, I'm like, look, I'm not talking about that. Life is a team game, mm-hmm. right? You want to be the Goldilocks factor. You want to be big enough, smart enough, 
fast enough, strong enough in order to make it in your own individual discipline. But you don't want to be at the top of that curve in any one thing because if you're at that top, I think you lose perspective and I think you lose desire. If you really were the biggest, strongest, fastest human being on the planet, I think you do become you know, a bit of a Goliath where mm-hmm. you're like, ah, this David guy, whatever. I'm never... That guy could never beat me. And then you become incredibly vulnerable. If you're more of the David where you're like, look, I know I'm not the biggest, strongest, or fastest, but I think I can beat the Goliath. That's a better way to approach that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, or you could be like Vernon Davis pulling John Brinkus across <laughs> the football field, uh, which is a crazy experiment, which people yeah. can go to a, a Washington Post article and read all about. I mean, that was nuts. But without, uh, and obviously, Vernon is an incredibly talented, physically strong, mentally strong, passionate athlete but and tight end. But without a quarterback, he's nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, football is that, it's to me, it's such a great analogy of people say, well, you got to have an amazing quarterback. I'm like, is that, is that true? Do you have to have an amazing quarterback? Define amazing quarterback for me. Like somebody who doesn't turn over the ball. I'm like, all right, you don't turn over the ball. What does that mean? You as a quarterback, you're accurate. You got to depend on your own O-line to block so you can throw. You mm-hmm. have to depend on your receivers to catch and to make sure that they don't fumble. You got to make sure you have a running game that offsets the passing game to keep the, deep, you know, the linebackers true. You have to, it's just, it's the magical game of chess really is what life is all about, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, yeah, you need a, you need a great CEO at a company. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But a great CEO with poor, you know, with a company that doesn't have a good mission statement and employees who haven't bought into it. And if the equivalent of the O line is not blocking for you, it's not a whole lot you could do. You can't single handedly just, you know, bend off, you know, every defender. You really need a whole team around you. Mm-hmm. I think soul and science is going to have a really positive impact just beyond connecting the two. But I think, especially for athletes, the athletes that you work with and collaborate with in the production of the show, because at a certain point, they're no longer going to be a football player. They're no longer going to be uh, the athlete that they're so widely known for. And how well are they prepared for the next part of their journey? And if they're not connected with the soul of who they are and just the science of who they are, their stats, you know, yeah. there's a big disconnect there that, that happens. Have you ever studied swimming? I, I'm going somewhere with this question. I'm just have you ever studied swimming? Uh, yes, I've studied swimming extensively. Okay, so the thing that... So I had earlier in this year, I had Caroline Burkle and Rebecca Sony on the show together. They run a business called Rise Athletes. And they're both Olympic medalists. And Rebecca Sony is a two-time world record holder. She broke her own record and where she swam the 200. She was the first woman to break... Two minutes and twenty seconds. Two minutes and twenty seconds on the two hundred meter breaststroke. And so, I in preparing for that conversation, I went back and I looked at the, all of the times going back to like nineteen twenty seven. Okay, same distance, same you know water for you know. Right. The only thing that changes is like technique and technology and all of that stuff. And you know the time in in. Uh, 1927, the fastest time was like three minutes and 30 seconds. And here you are, you know, back in 2008, where it was 219. So how does that happen? And at what point does innovation 
and all of that stuff begin to just dramatically slow because you're not going to eventually be able to swim across in one minute. Right. So I wrote a book. It was a New York Times bestselling book called The Perfection Point. You should look it up. It's all about what is the best human beings could possibly achieve if everything were perfect. If the conditions were perfect, technology were perfect, that you know the size of the athlete is perfect, everything was perfect. Um, and what what I what I really looked at was everyone said, you know, well, Usain Bolt came along, and you know, no one's ever going to be faster than him. And I'm like, obviously, that's not true. Somebody will be faster than him. But what's the fastest you can run a hundred meter dash? Like you said, you're never going to run a hundred meter dash in a tenth of a second. So somewhere between a tenth of a second. And you know, nine point five two, some somewhere between there, there's the fastest. And how do you arrive at that? So I, so in my book, I, hmm. I really lay it all out. I'll give you the example of like when we say, well, how does that happen? The way that it happens is there. there there's a very interesting concept that that every, that we need to think about. We are connected more than people think. We are all connect, interconnected. When Roger Bannister in 1954 broke the four-minute mile, prior to that, it was considered the impossible. There was no way anybody could ever run an arbitrary distance at an arbitrary time, right? We pick, I always tell people, beware of round numbers. I'm like, the answer to the answer to the equations of you know how long it takes to do something or how it's never an even number. It's not a round number, like some bizarre number, but for the sake of argument, we were saying four-minute mile. Four minutes, one mile. He breaks it. 46 days later, it's broken again. Then within 10 years, it's broken 300 times. It's once every 12 days. That means we as human beings are really bad at setting limits. <laughs> bad at it, right? So we look at like, well, how fast could we swim that length? You know, we're patting ourselves on the back and you're like, well, you're not even close to human potential. So we build on each other. We become interconnected. And it's that is the proverbial breaking the ceiling of saying like, look, I I'm blazing a trail. I broke the ceiling. Whatever analogy you want. Once you see somebody do that, it opens up the floodgates of the other things that are possible. Mm-mm. And it's constantly moving that line of what can be done forward until at some point yep. that line is no longer able to be moved. It's just you know there, but yeah. it's going to take so long for anybody to. Even get close to that line, I think. You know, I mean, it, for example, going back to the swimming, it took, you know, however many years, 1927 till 2008, to go from three minutes, 30 seconds to two minutes, 19 seconds, you know, for the women's yeah. 200 meter breaststroke. Right. You've got a, a lot going on. You've got the soul and science that's on the NFL network and others and, and more coming. Um, it's probably going to be streaming on something soon. <laughs> You've yeah. got uh, the Brink of Midnight podcast. Um, and, uh, and then you've got a charity that I know that's important to you that you're doing with Ray Lewis. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's called the Ray of Hope Foundation. Everybody can look it up at rayofhopefoundation.org. We are all about spreading positive energy to those who are in dire need. So the, it, the, the way that it really started was Ray and I both got a request you know, just from random people to, hey, can you send me, you know, my my, you know, my son's in a coma or, you know, my friend has cancer and can you just send um, a positive message? And 
you know, we we both recorded personalized inspirational videos just on our iPhone and sent it directly to that person. And I said to Ray, I'm like, you know, this is so easy to do. Maybe this is why technology exists as opposed to, you know, slandering everybody. I'm like, maybe we're connected just so people can realize we're praying for you. We're thinking about you. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. So our foundation is is centered around lifting people up in the darkest times um, by you know you can go and submit a request um, and we'll find the celebrity you know we have a, a roster of celebrities um, who have all said hey you know I'm totally willing to at a moment's notice send out a message and it's really it's really just a positive driven charity we're having a, a, a big Super Bowl event down at the Porsche headquarters in Atlanta. Um, on February 1st, Friday, February 1st, Ray's going to be down there with the whole Hall of Fame class. There are going to be tons of yellow jackets. It's called the Gold Jacket Party for a Purpose. Mm. Um, and it's really to support the Ray of Hope Foundations. We're really passionate about it. That's awesome. We'll be sure to link to that and, every, and everything else that you've mentioned in the show notes. Is there any place else online where you're really active and people can connect with you? Pete, you know, I'm not a huge social media guy, but you can find me on Twitter um, at JohnBrinkus underscore. Um, also, you can reach me through my website um, at just johnbrankus.com. Um, what I would say in terms of keeping up with me, follow johnbrankus.com and, 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 uh, and follow me on Twitter. But also, if you ever want to reach out to me, I cannot tell you the number of people I have hired who just have... They're random people who have reached out. They've written an awesome letter. They've make a, made a great argument on why they want to sort of be in this business. You know, don't, be, don't be scared to reach out. You know the uh, like, like the like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100 percent of the shots that you mm-hmm. don't take. Mm-hmm. If someone wants to reach out, go to my website. It's just got an email link. <laughs> um, feel free to uh, you know take a swing. Don't be that person that's sitting in there saying, "Dear God, please find me a way to meet John Brinkus." He <laughs> <laughs> just gave it to you, people. <laughs> I just gave you. Go to johnbrinkus.com. You can get in touch with me. Okay, I asked three questions of every single guest when we wrap up, and uh, before I do that. You you mentioned earlier that we're all connected, and I saw a documentary years ago. I I think it's called I Am, um, and it's it was it was about this company that's located in the Silicon Valley called HeartMath, and okay. basically it it literally they studied how we are all connected, like at an electromagnetic level, you know, or something like it was it was some crazy thing. I'll have to try to find it again. But anyway, the first question of the three. Is if you could pick, and I think you're gonna have fun with this question. If you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Wow. If I could any skill set that I currently have and turn into a superpower, I think I'm going to I'm gonna pick, I possess the ability to create something out of nothing to make something. If I were to turn that into a superpower, I would be nonstop creating things to help those in need. That's what yes. I would be doing nonstop. And I would be making something out of nothing as a superpower and helping those in need. I love it. I love it. The next question, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we can do? Well, lie number one is, well, that, that pers- that's for that person, not me. So that would be number one. Uh, number two... That other person is way smarter than I am, which I, I, I tell everybody. I'm like, when you dive into what is intelligence, what is smart, it's like, like, don't sell yourself short. And I think number three is 
I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is so true. Those, those I think are the good three. That's for somebody else. That person's way smarter than I am and I don't have time. I love it. I love it. The last question goes back to your love of film. Okay. Right. So it, you, it's 100 years from now and you've left a set of instructions to a cinematographer, to a director to set up a scene, the final scene in a film about the life of John Brinkus. What would that scene look like? What would be, what would be the emotion? What would be the setup? What would be the lighting? So what I'm saying, this is, um, this is the last scene of my life. It, I'm, however it is, and I, I, I have no idea how my life is going to end, but I do not, I do not foresee a slow fade. So I see something <laughs> big, abrupt, who knows? So when you're setting it up, I'm going to say, make sure you have, you know, make sure you have 10 cameras rolling all the time, you know, from the time that I'm this age, because you never know when it's going to happen. Because I have so many crazy stories where I never should have lived. One of those times, I'm not going to live. <laughs> There's no slow fade. Make sure you're rolling. Yeah, you, you you were lucky to live when Vernon Davis launched you four <laughs> feet into the air. Exactly. John Brinkus, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It's been a blast. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.